It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and I want to introduce you to Bonong Mahali. He's the Chancellor of the University of the Free State, Professor of Practice at the Johannesburg Business School, Chairman of both the Bidvest Group Limited and SBV Services, and also a member of the Community of Chairmen in the World Economic Forum. He's a highly respected South African businessman. He's known for his patriotism, his active role in seeking to advance the country's interests. And when it comes to fixing South Africa, I can think of no better guest. Bonang, a very warm welcome to you. This is what I find interesting. Originally, I'm told you wanted to be a medical doctor. So I'm thinking it's fair to say that fixing things is probably in your DNA. I think I did worse than that, Jeremy. I actually went and spent time at Vets Medical School. Professor Philip Tobias was our dean at that time. Spent four glorious years. And on the fifth year, I remember it was the 17th of April, it then dawned on me that, you know what, I actually want to be a manager. But I'm glad for that initial experience. We'd already delivered a few babies at Alexander Community Clinic. What did your family say when you gave it up after all that time? I think my mother wanted to kill me. Mm. But you've made her proud since then, I think. I think I made my lovely wife, Susan, proud because Susan and I... 24th of August last year, we were happily married for 42 years. I don't know what she was smoking, but at 17, I look her in the centerpiece of the pupils of her eyes and say, will you marry me? And she says, yes. And I said, but at 17, what did I know? What did I have? And that's the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. Just for the record, we are recording this podcast on Valentine's Day. I hope that you're going to spoil her tonight. I'll bring an electronic rose because the real one I can't afford. <laughs> they are so expensive these days. Bonang, you have an impressive track record of being involved in, of building, managing successful companies. I want to try and draw a link between what you've done in the private sector and the broader building blocks that are needed to fix the myriad problems in this country. We don't need to go over what the problems are because we would spend an entire podcast. I think that is common cause. And as I told you before we started recording, this podcast is dedicated at trying to find solutions. So take me into your private sector experience and give me a sense of what you've done there that could be replicated as far as the bigger build for South Africa is concerned. So as far as the country is concerned... I take a lot of inspiration from the former Russian president, Mikhail Gorbachev, who observed that the moment we start speaking only about our history, that's when I knew that the end is near. The second piece, I think, is the full appreciation that all our problems are known, but also all the solutions are well articulated. What we lack is the ability to do, just the execution. Because it was General George Patton who reminds us that 
great wars are won by good execution, not great plans, because good execution will save even a mediocre plan. Let me end by saying, you see, when a country makes English compulsory and agriculture optional, it can only produce citizens that speak English fluently on an empty stomach. Mm. So it's between those two extremes that we need to find ourselves as a people with great natural endowments because we need to realize that the solutions are within us. They are not without us. They are not exogenous. They are internal. And I'll put the question to you a little bit later about whether you believe there is a willing majority in South Africa who are committed to wanting to fix things. And I know what your answer is going to be. Let me reel back to that word execution and the inability to do that. What's all that about? Is it poor leadership? Is it capacity? Is it a lack of understanding and skill? Is it a combination of all of that? What precludes us? from swift and accelerated execution when it comes to all of those problems that we know about. So Zapu's president, Joshua Nkoma, says this came to me late in my life, that it is possible for a country to attain its political liberation without its people being free. So what we have to ask ourselves is, the people who call themselves our leaders, do they have our best interest at heart? Because you see, you have to love your people to lead them. We look back on 30 years of being free, and yet out of 60.02 million South Africans, half of us live below the poverty datum line. 10 million young people are not in education, employment, and training. 6 million boys don't know their fathers. 30 years into democracy, we are talking about load shedding, which started in February of 2008, 16 years later, we haven't been able to solve it. Not because we don't have ESCOM engineers who know what the root cause is or who understand this notion of planned and preventative maintenance. But because I think when we look back, whether we like it or not, we need to say, maybe, just maybe, our leaders don't love us enough. Maybe, just maybe, they are in it for themselves. Maybe, just maybe, this notion, the slogan, every five years as we stare the seventh administration in the eye, that a better life for all actually means a better life only for elected officials, not for us janitors. Maybe, just maybe, even the people that are in administration now are just as rotten to the core. So you're saying to me that it's just gross expediency when the ruling party says we are in it to give people a better life for all. It's a slogan. And when you look at everything that we've inherited, even from people who don't like us, how did we let it die in our hands? The lottery commissions, three-year investigation, says they're running a web of, of corruption, bribery, mm. stealing and cheating. We get hit by COVID. The 500 billion response, socioeconomic response to this pandemic to save lives and livelihoods ends up being stolen. Even PPE that is meant to protect us from the devastation of this virus gets looted. We have 734 
state-owned enterprises and state-owned companies that had we appointed just African women and left them only for five years without political interference, with 20% of them failing, today we'd be looking back and say we've got 30,000 women that know how to run complex entities like ESCOM, Transnet, because 28 of those are bigger than most African countries' economies. Jeremy, let me end by saying, I listened to the President's State of the Nation address. SONA is supposed to set the tone for the next year so that a few days later the Minister of Finance can translate this long-term strategy into financial numbers because that's what the budget is. It says, I've heard what my boss has said. This is where I'm going to give you the resources to be able to execute. And not once did I hear the word tourism in that. And yet is the lowest hanging fruit. One, because tourism has the potential to be the greatest foreign exchange earner. But also because when you put a hotel in Emonlo, at Nkandla, at Ngutu, Langanyanga and Kukuletu in the Western Cape. The people who work there don't have to take a taxi to work. They move from their village and they walk to the hotel. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it doesn't help to talk about the township economy when our total sum understanding of a township economy is that it's okay for a bus full of Americans and Europeans to go to one distance away to and succumbs in Villagazi Street and spend 350 rand on a plate of food, but spend 10,000 rent at the Michelangelo per night uh, sleeping in Sentin. When we could, 30 years into democracy, have made sure that they don't only eat in Soweto, but they sleep in Soweto. Lastly, Soweto is bigger than most of our trading partners in the South African Customs Union, Namibia, Eswatin, Lesotho, and Botswana. Each has, on average, 2 million people. In Soweto, unofficially, we have three and a half million people. So Soweto is bigger than Namibia, bigger than Botswana. So it's okay for these blacks to drive their BMWs and Mercedes-Benz in Soweto, but when they're involved in an accident, they must put it on a flatbed to take it to town because in a country called Soweto, there's not a single body repair shop in Soweto to fix it in Soweto. All right, so you've raised the issue of disparity. I understand that. How do you close the gap then? First and foremost is to say if we are going to take the low-hanging fruit, and I used tourism Tourism. as an example, Mm. let's compare ourselves with a country that looks like us, Australia, because we're far from everywhere. And we look at only tourists from people that are friendly to us, India and China. So when you look at the six years from 2012 until now, we attracted South Africa a million tourists to this country. Australia doubled that number at 2 million. But when you look at what Australia has done, is every year they've been adding exponentially to that number. What South Africa has done, every year we've been taking away from that number. Every country in the world, once they capture as a tourist, the number increases. Ours has decreased. Had we increased that number, would have banked 9.3 billion. Mm. But no, I, I don't, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, though, but uh, one of the reasons why that graph is splitting, as you put it, is that we don't, uh, we have the problem of rampant crime and corruption. Australia doesn't. 
uh, we are not a desirable, safe place to go to. That's the problem with tourism. You have hit the nail on the head. They need to feel safe. Mm. At the moment, you've got these tourists going to Sun City and they get dropped on their way there because of this web of crime. And lastly, you look at China. And China, it's 10 times more than the 1 million that we have. We would have banked 100 billion. So that's lost opportunities, and we don't even talk about it. Here's where the solution for me comes. Mm. So I think let's start with business, because if business wants to look at itself as a leader of society, first, business needs to fix itself and get its own house in order. So I'm suggesting that from now on, I think business must stop funding the political parties commensurate to their representation. Imagine if they woke up one day and said, we'll fund only those countries that sign up to no more than five commitments that we demand as business. Number one on that list has to be transformation because this country must look like us. This economy must look like us. Secondly, ethical leadership. Number three, good governance. Number four is about service delivery because that's the job description of these politicians. Last one is what you touched on, law and order safety and security because without law and order who are we and what are we and what stops business from doing that is a fear of not getting business of not getting contracts of not getting work but you see business does not get its business and contracts from government it gets it from consumers it's like saying when the president that if you stop voting for us we will stop the social grants if you are an educated and aware and woke South African, you'll know that actually the money for social grants come from yourself Mm. because you are a taxpayer. Therefore, you're not going to to accept that. It's about saying, as a taxpayer, we hire these politicians. Therefore, instead of of us standing up when they walk into the room, how about we sit down and they stand up because they work for us and we have the power of the X in 2024 to choose who should be our next crop of leaders. You don't think that business also needs to get off the fence a little bit? I think business has been told through a variety of polls. This is science that they are trusted more than government. Mm. In the 2021, they are trusted more than even media. And for them to internalize that, they need to say, oh, Now we want to be leader of society. I think a serious intervention is needed to steer business back. And what is needed today is bold, incisive leadership, which only business itself can provide. Having come to that conclusion. But business business knows that, but they still don't want to do it. They still are not prepared to take the steps that you are suggesting it takes. Because business actually needs only two things. It's bold and decisive leadership which I wish our politicians had. That's all it is. So for bold and incisive leadership, business needs to say, if the politics go south, it doesn't matter what we do, we will never be profitable. And load shedding is a good example. This phenomenon that started in February of 2008, 16 years later, we are unable to fix it. So we send a strategic conversation that says, when you look at ourselves in the mirror, If we can't fix load shedding, how can then we lead 60 million South Africans? Secondly, it says, but look at the devastating consequence uh, of that load shedding. So each time we reach stage six, we lose 4 billion a day. Between stages, it's 500 million. 
we've wiped off an entire two percentage points per annum in 16 years. And yet the, the population growth is 1.5%. So what it means is that you and I, in terms of discretionary purchasing power and disposable income, we've been going backwards. Therefore, I think what load shedding has done to this economy is taking us back 20 years. But let me end by saying, Jeremy, today this economy should be 20% bigger than it was 16 years ago had we not had load shedding. I want to pick a little bit more at the scab around business. And I'm wondering to myself as you speak and as you give me the solution, whether you think business has the appetite to be courageous or do you think that we've got to the point now where it's every person for themselves that we're in a climate of self-preservation that it's too late because when you talk to people in your exalted circles of business they must be expressing that frustration it can be every man for himself because then we are on a slippery slope That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we all know that it can't be every man for themselves. But do you think that it's got to the point where they're battening down the hatches and just trying as hard as they can to survive instead of making those bold, courageous steps uh, that you're suggesting like the political party funding uh, concept? I think I agree with you, actually. I really do. So the first, it's an acceptance that politics determines economics. The impact of politics on the economy is tenfold than what Naspers and Vodacom and Coca-Cola can do just in a year. Therefore, the willingness to want to fix South Africa is actually the job of business. Because if you ask me what's the job of business today in this country, when so many of us dare to hope that joint peace will prevail, number one will be to say business must be a trusted advisor to a partner of choice. Lastly, it must do everything in its power to make sure that this ANC-led government is a capable state. Because in the nine wasted years, we have learned that it's easier to deal with a capable state than the one that is not. Therefore, business is not our second chance. It's our last chance. And the second part of my question is, do you think business has the appetite to step up to the plate? Or do you think it's afraid? It should have the same appetite that when we were at our lowest ebb during the referendum, business agitated and orchestrated for every single solitary one of their employees to vote yes, and we got a resounding 75%. They were not being party political, but they were being patriotic. The same way that when we became free, then business said, you know what, we are going to have an investment fund. We're going to put a billion rent aside. In three days, they banked 750 million rent. The same way that business said, during the height of state capture, when a sitting president would go in the protection of parliament and say, they're saying state capture. Where is state capture? Business marched in their suits to go to the east wing of the union buildings and said, not in our name. And they rooted out and defeated state capture. And at that time, they said, sitting president, you must go. And they killed Bell Pottinger. Their target was to kill it in six months. We killed it in three months. Bonang, That's our job. Bonang Mahali, you're a difficult person to read. I, I cannot work out whether you are very despondent uh, and you're proposing great ideas or whether in this 
vein of criticism, there is a degree of optimism. What is it? I'm an eternal help, optimist. Help me understand here. I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah. One, because But it's difficult to be optimistic these days. Impossible. Yeah. And the reason is because we have been through much. Mm. Number two, our leaders have demonstrated that they can spend 27 years in Robben Island and still come back and preach reconciliation. We are a resilient bunch because everything that has been thrown at us, when we put our shoulder to the wheel, we can overcome it. I think we put a disproportionate power on the politicians that have dropped us at every single turn. Lastly, I'm saying, I think as business, we need to say, but our colleagues in the rest of the continent told us that you're going to be like us, and we laughed at them and say it's not going to happen. And there are three lessons that we learned from that. That number one, the Uhuru presidents that are in power for 40 and 50 years are not good for Africans. That number two, even the good guys left on their own for far too long eventually become the bad guys. That lastly, what we need is a viable opposition just to keep the good guys in check. All right. So apart from the funding of political parties idea, which I think many people would say is a good idea, maybe impractical because there's also real politic attached to that. But let's park that for one side. What's your call to business on this podcast. Give me three things that you think business needs to do now in order to start facilitating that fix. First is for business to regain its integrity, reputation, and credibility because you need to have the right and the right to speak. So the practical thing that business can do right now in this country, in this moment, is imagine if they were the embodiment and emblematic of transformation. Because business employs 16.5 million South Africans. Government in all three spheres, 1.3 million. So if business is transformed, South Africa will be transformed. Number two, imagine if business said, because the lifeblood of business is small and medium enterprises, imagine if we pay them in 30 days, because to them, that's the difference between life and death. And they start measuring amongst themselves those who pay SMEs in seven days. Number three, imagine if business said, you know, what we are going to do is when you get into our boardrooms, will be broadly reflective of the demographics, because we're not only talking diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we demonstrate it in deeds, not just in words. I think if we did that, would be a right for us to speak. Lastly, for then business at every platform to say, the people who want to stand up for political leadership must themselves be ethical, they must be transparent because it's public money. And then lastly, there must be this notion of final accountability. I mean, how many people have been found guilty by a court of law and yet have been promoted as members of parliament? And some of them are chairpersons of portfolio committees uh, in parliament. I asked you a little earlier, and I didn't get an answer, to whether you think there is a willing majority still of ordinary people in this country to want to fix things? Or again, aside from business, have they given up hope? Resounding majority of people are very hopeful. And we saw this when we you elected... Can't build, you can't build a country and fix a country on hope. And, and we saw this when we elected President Matamal Ramaphosa. He singularly came in with the biggest goodwill. 
better than that of Mandela because some thought he's a communist. They couldn't really suspect. Mm. Better than Tabumbeki because they thought, okay, economist from Oxford, but maybe pan-Africanist. With him, labor, civil society and business put everything behind him. And I think he's disappointed all of us by his indecisiveness, but also by keeping the thieves that he found in parliament at that time. So out of 30, he disappoints only 10 and he leaves the 20 and he goes on to promote the other 20. Now, the sixth administration is probably going to be remembered as the one that did absolutely the least mm. of all the other five administrations that came before. Yet, Bonang Mahali, you still say there's room for hope. The reason why people commit suicide is on an aggregate basis in their own think that tomorrow can be better than today. And we know that in South Africa, that can be true. This is God's own country. We are so blessed with opportunities. We have every mineral that the world needs, not as number 17 and 19, but as number one or number two. And what we need to be asking ourselves is why are we allowing the customers to set the price when we are the ones that are taking the risk to go to the belly of the earth and come up with the gold and the diamonds. And then the London sales organization tells us at what price we need to mm. sell it. We need to ask ourselves, what is the organization of African unity doing when we were the first continent in the world to talk about the United States of Africa and a single currency called the Afro, and yet the 28-member mm. EU executed on it and they have a currency called the Euro. After the Brexit, there's still 27 of them, and they helped Hungary to come out of the self-perpetuating vicious cycle of abject poverty. All right. You've laid a number of solutions on the table. I want to tell you a story now. Many, many years ago, I came to visit you in an office in Randburg. I think you were the chief executive officer of Draken Skulls. Correct. If I'm not mistaken, and I was editing a magazine and I came and I was asking you for advertising and uh, you kindly supported the venture at the time. But you also said to me that I want proof, Jeremy, that uh, my money is going to be measurably used. It's that old business cliche. If you can't measure it, uh, then you can't manage it which I think you agree with. I think that's what you were saying to me. So let's assume that some of the solutions that you've put on the table are implemented. How going forward is the measurable definition of success? What are the flags? What are the landmarks that you would look out for so you could get bang for your buck? Because that's what you wanted all those years ago, and I'm sure you still do. And Jeremy, if you came to me again mm. tomorrow... I'll still give you the money mm. because you accounted fully for it. Mm. But also the impact was unbelievable. So how do you, how, so in, the on a national scale, then, yes. how do you measure impact? So to the politicians, the first would say, but if I'm a politician, I wake up to do what? To deliver service that's needed by our people. This is water. This is electricity because electricity is the fourth means of production. Without it, there mm. is no economy. We need that to say, if we can provide the services that people are paying for, it's a tick. Secondly, we need to say, we went to war for the land. The Constitution, Section 25, Article 3A, gives us the land reform tools for land restitution, land redistribution, and this notion called security of tenure. Why have we not executed on it? 
Therefore, the measurement must be, does the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry have the biggest budget? Because that's the priority. Today, it has the smallest. That even the land court is the only one that doesn't have a permanent judge. All of them are acting to show that we have not really prioritized it. Here's the last one for me. It's about saying, if every slogan was a better life for all, can we look back and say we have been able to provide just three things? One, a roof over the head of the majority of our people. Not RDP houses that disintegrate quicker than even the four-roomed houses of Soweto. Number two, we need to say, when my child is ill, can I send them to a hospital where they can get help? And then lastly, can I give them the education that will be the surest way in which one can transcend social classes? Born poor in Alexander, but after 20 years, be able to afford a house in the leafy suburbs of Bryanston. Not because you got a tender, but because you have earned it. You deserve it, and you can afford it. Well, now, Mahali, thank you so much for joining us here on Money. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.